We are in the section called the Olivet Discourse. We, Pastor Mike has uh, slowed down to a crawl, and he is going to attempt to speed up a little bit today. Over the last three weeks, we've been looking at Luke's record of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus was prompted to give a description of the future events when some of his disciples came to him and asked him for an explanation of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem because he said it was going to uh, be destroyed. Jesus had prophesied the temple was going to be utterly destroyed and every stone would be torn down. And so they come and say, I want some information. I, I want some more information on this. Jesus is giving now in this passage a full description of the judgment that the people were going to face in light of the rejection for the Messiah. But he's also alluding to a final judgment that's going to happen before he returns. So we have, as I've mentioned numerous times, the near and the far judgments. You have the near judgment of Jerusalem being destroyed and the far judgment of the tribulation, the great tribulation before the Messiah returns. And we're going to look at this. Notice the context of the passages is talking about judgment for rejecting the Messiah. If you look back in 1943, Luke 1943, it says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So what do we have here? This is Jesus telling them in Luke 19 that, look, you're going to be judged because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. That is the time of the Messiah coming and revealing himself to them. They didn't recognize it. They didn't respond to the Messiah. So judgment's coming. Then in Luke 20, it says, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is right after Jesus had said, that he was the stone which the builders rejected. And he was the one that was then going to turn around and there would be some judgment for rejecting him. And in Luke 20, 47, he talked about judgment on the scribes. These will receive greater condemnation. As we've gone through this, (coughs) Jerusalem and the Jewish people were in the crosshairs of God's judgment now because they had rejected the Messiah. I think all too often we think sin doesn't have consequences. But God is a just God and He does not allow sin to go without a punishment. Now, the good news for us who trust in Christ, repent and trust in Him, He bore our sins. He bore our judgment. Not that we don't deserve the judgment. Everybody in this room deserves one thing. Let's see if we've got this real good. Grace Bible should know the answer to this. What do we deserve? That's right. We deserve hell. But God, can you imagine? We've got it, don't we? That's great. That's What a testimony from a church. We don't say we deserve a Rolls Royce or any of those things that the seeker-sensitive movement would tell us. We deserve hell. But we have somebody that bore our judgment for us. And his name is Jesus. The disciples had most likely associated this destruction Jesus was speaking of, though, with the establishment of the kingdom in Jerusalem. 
Many of the prophets had explained that there would be judgment before the king returned. Jesus came, and there wasn't a lot of judgment. And now he says judgment's coming, so they must think, oh, well, then that means the kingdom's coming. Maybe there's a little reversal there. Well, no. In fact, there was a destruction that was going to come afterwards, but then there was going to be this gigantic time gap before Christ returned. And then there would be another judgment right before the Messiah returned. The disciples couldn't comprehend all this. The the problem was the disciples had connected the destruction of Jerusalem with the judgment right before the return of of Christ. So they asked these questions and they asked them, right, is right along with, is this the end of the age? When is the end of the age? So they're thinking this is going to happen. When he says that the temple is going to be destroyed, oh, then the Messiah is going to come or you're going to return. But that's not how it works. There had to be an age of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles is what our passage talks about. There was a main element of Jesus' second coming that he wanted them to understand. And here it is. And I think it applies to all of us. And it still applies today. The timing of his return and the establishment of his kingdom in Jerusalem and his kingdom here is not going to be revealed. The time will not be revealed. They just need to trust God with the time and be ready always. That's what we're supposed to do too. We don't know when. We just know it's going to happen. So be ready. That's the gist of what he's saying over and over and over. We don't know when the great judgment before Christ's return will happen. But we must trust him and be ready always. Judgment is coming. We must be committed to the king and ready for his return. So the natural question is, as we've been going through this, are you ready? That's the point. Are you ready? I think we need to take it seriously. Jesus was saying take it seriously. Now we saw a couple of themes for prophecy was the near and the far fulfillment, like I said. And often in scripture... And in prophecy, there's a near fulfillment that pointed forward to a far fulfillment. And we see this everywhere in Scripture. I was reminded of another example as I was reading through Brenda's Bible study for the ladies two days ago. The Exodus and the establishment of the Passover feast. These events were a great redemption, weren't they? A time when slaves were rescued from captivity by God. They were graciously protected by the judgment from the judgment of God that fell on Egypt. But they were being protected and God rescued them. They were redeemed. The events were a beautiful picture of an intimately involved Yahweh God who would redeem a nation from the bondage of Egypt. But this event pointed forward to a greater redemption that would be provided by Yahweh incarnate. Jesus Christ. The intimately involved Yahweh would provide redemption for a specific people who were in bondage to a different king or a different master. And that was sin and death and Satan. So one event pointed forward to another event. There was a near and there is a far. Yet at the same time, our redemption is already a present reality for us today, isn't it? 
But do you know that there's a far-off redemption that we're all longing for too? How many of you are longing for the far-off redemption? Give me the new body. (laughs) Take the curse away from this world. Is that not true? There is a near redemption and a far redemption. The spiritual redemption that is in Christ is also the ground for the final redemption where God will take away the curse and God will establish His kingdom. That's great news, isn't it? Now, I believe that our passage today, we see Jesus giving another of those near and far. The first 20 to 24, you see the near for the disciples. And then the far is after that, 25 to 28. And we have this idea of the day of vengeance, the day of judgment. First, Jerusalem is in review, in view, with its near consequences for rejecting the Messiah. But at the end of the age, there will be a far consequence upon all the nations for rejecting the Messiah. First, the Jews receive the judgment for rejecting the Messiah. And second, before the Lord returns, because the vast majority of the world will turn away from Messiah and will not embrace him, God will then pour out his wrath during the great tribulation period. So the question is, is why does he do this? Is What is the great tribulation period? Well, the great tribulation period is not all hell breaking loose. It is all heaven breaking loose. It is the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb says, that's it. You've rejected me. All people have rejected me. That's it. Judgment's coming. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that'll be a bad day? Oh, yeah. Has there been a day anywhere close to that? No. When God, the one that holds the stars in his hands, says, that's it? Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to be a bad day. And I'm very sure, and I know some of you are are debating this whole pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture. Am I going to be here or am I not going to be here? I'm very sure that I'm not going to be here. Now, You might say, well, how sure are you? I am dead serious sure. Because I believe that God is not going to judge his bride. Not going to pour out his wrath on his bride. That's why I believe one of the main reasons why we are raptured before the tribulation period. Because he's not going to pour out his wrath on us. But he is going to pour out his wrath on the world that has rejected him. So you ask, why am I there? That's one of the main reasons. So, in between verses 4 and, or 24 and 25, there's a rapture that happens. You figure that one out? I know it doesn't say it, but he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about the Jewish people and what God's going to do in that area. So, let's go ahead and look at our passage. Remember, we saw a couple of commands for us to follow in light of the circumstances we live in and in light of the circumstances the disciples live it in. Avoid being duped by false Christs. This was a warning to avoid false prophets in light of the times, in verse 8. Don't be terrified by the world's chaos. In verses 9 to 11, this is appealed to to not be afraid as the world groans and all the things happen. And then third, be strong and courageous for the Lord is with you. That is, this is a call to be boldly or to boldly proclaim the gospel in face of persecution. Trusting in the Lord that He's always with you and He will empower you. Stand firm. 
So today we'll cover two more of the commands. Again, I believe the next two commands start with the near destruction of Jerusalem and move to the final judgment from God before the second coming. I come to this conclusion because of the parallel passages found in Matthew and Mark. We didn't get to read Matthew, but we'll do it in a little bit. If you look at the passages, look at Matthew, look at Mark, and look at Luke together, you'll start seeing that one of them emphasizes the later part, while as Luke emphasizes the nearer part. And if you just lay it out and read them right beside each other, you start to see it. So the first command, and and Luke's emphasis, is on the destruction of Jerusalem. And this first command would be directly applicable to the disciples, right after his death, burial, and resurrection. The far is more applicable to the disciples or the followers of Christ during the tribulation. This is why Mark and Matthew say, let the reader understand. You see that little phrase, Matthew and Mark, let the reader understand. It implies that those are not for the guys that are writing it even, not even the ones that heard it initially. Remember, that was only the four disciples. Let the reader understand. So the Bibles are going to be there, and people during the tribulation, after his bride has been taken, there are going to be people that are going to be, whoa, what happened? Missed something. Can you imagine if the rapture happened right now? That'd, that'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? If it happened right now? If all of us that were true believers in Christ, the rapture happened right now, what about the other ones? Read over First Thessalonians 4. It says we will be taken to be in the clouds. Is what it says. What about the other ones that didn't believe? Here's what you have to look forward to. Verses 25 to 28 of Luke 21. That's what you have to look forward to. That would be a moment that all of you that haven't believed yet, if the rapture did happen, that would be the moment that you go, now's the time I need to repent and believe in Christ. That would be a very important moment. There's clues in this passage, though, that point to which time period he's talking about. Verses, the, first, the first command is 20 to 24, and then 25 to 28 is the second command. Again, there's one main concept to, bring, to keep in mind, though, as we study these passages. The basic characteristics of the time of the first coming, from the first coming to the second coming, are similar. This is the time the gospel is going out into the whole world. This is the time where the world as a whole will hate and reject the message of Jesus. Their rejection of the Messiah as a whole will lead to persecution from those who are committed to, or, or, or to those who are committed to Christ. The time of rejection and the pain and the eventual all-out judgment on the world will be a time to trust in the Lord, knowing He's in control. He has decreed everything from the beginning, the end from the beginning. So let's look at the fourth command. Notice, fourth, recognize the desolation of Jerusalem is determined. This is the near for the disciples, the first looking at Jerusalem. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city 
must leave, and those who are in the country must not, not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. (coughs) I think that's the transition right there. We see here God's patience comes to an end with the Jewish people as a whole. Not every Jewish person, but the nation as a whole who is promised a Messiah has rejected their Messiah and now there is what's called a partial hardening that is happening to the Jewish people. He had warned them judgment was coming. He had wept over their city coming into Jerusalem. And now he gives more details concerning Jerusalem's judgment. What's interesting to me is he does not tell the unbelievers of this coming judgment. Rather, he tells his closest disciples of this coming judgment. Again, look, he was in the temple area. He's left the temple area now. He's up on the Mount of Olives and he's talking to four disciples. Why didn't he tell all the Jewish people, stand up and say, Hey, this temple's going to be destroyed. You guys, all the pregnant ladies, you're in trouble. Why didn't he tell it in the temple? Notice what he tells them. In Luke 21, 20, look at the details. He gets detailed here. And Mark 13, 3 says that he did it privately. What in the world? Why is he doing it privately? Well, I think it's because he wanted the disciples to be fixed on the judgment to come. Why does he want disciples to be fixed on judgment to come? I'll tell you in a second. Let's look at the details, though. Armies will surround Jerusalem. This was what Titus did in 70 AD, 37 years later roughly. The terror of knowing the Roman Empire was surrounding the city would have been terrifying for all those involved. It was the Roman army's strategy to surround the city to keep everybody in from escaping and then and also to keep them from having a weak spot in their battle line so they would surround it completely. It was a horrifying experience for any of those involved. The sound of the gathering armies would have been like thunder to them. <clears throat> I'll give you an ex- illustration. See this mountain? Right here. After Jerusalem fell, a little while later, this place fell. If you look right up at the top, right there, right there, that's called Masada. Masada. That was an ancient city that was built by, I think it was the uh, Herod the Great built it. But they were up here, okay? So what happened is, after the Jews fled in 70 AD, some of them went to this little city, and they hid out up in the top. And what Rome did is they chased every single one. They were chasing them out of the land. 
they chased them to this area. And they encamped around the city. And what happened is, for days, months, in order to get up there, they couldn't come around, they couldn't come the way up, which like to kind of scale up and back and scale up and back to get up the top to get them. Because, you know, you do that, they're just picking you off from the top. There's no way. So what they did was built this giant ramp of land. They literally tracked land in, you know, brought in dirt and built a ramp for them to go into the city. And as the people watched, as the Roman Empire was, the Roman army was coming in, finally at the end, they said, you know, the next day they're going to be across, they're coming in, we're all dying. And they all committed suicide, the whole city. Rome terrified them. They knew they were going to be crucified. They knew that they were going to be treated horribly. And so they committed suicide. They died right there. You know what, you know what the Israeli army does now? Or at least they used to. They would take their Air Force people up to this spot and say, you must be willing to die for your country. We will never give the land back. And they take them up here as like an inaugural service type thing to get them before they go out. They used to do that. You get an idea of how terrifying that would be. And Jesus says, that's exactly what's going to happen to Jerusalem. You're going to be surrounded by armies. It's going to be bad. And Jerusalem will be destroyed. They were told to avoid the city. Flee, don't return. This was God's vengeance on the Jewish people for rejecting their Messiah. <clears throat> I guess we shouldn't take it lightly. huh? This is not just a, a, a small little choice of whether or not we should follow God or not. This is an important thing that we should do. Christ is the one to be bowed to, to be honored. God is a wrathful God. I know that's hard to hear, but it's true. God uses even the wicked nations to bring judgment on those who reject him. This is obviously the case here. The word vengeance here literally means uh, justice. God's retributive justice, his vengeance, his punishment, his revenge. Exodus 34, 7 states this, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Boy, we, this is who God is. By the way, uh, a lot of people say, well, the Old Testament is the judgment section of Scripture. <laughs> Only if you avoid prophecy in the New Testament. Do you understand? You throw away the book of Revelation, you throw away all the prophecy sections, and you won't see as much judgment in the New Testament. But the reality is, is that there's just as much. Just meditate on Revelation 6 to 19, chapter 6 to 19. Go ahead and spend some time thinking on those. God is a just God. So now think for a second. In light of the fact that the four disciples Jesus is speaking to would probably not be alive even when Jerusalem happened, when this happened. 
Why would Jesus be telling these disciples this? In fact, John most likely was in Ephesus, far away from Jerusalem when this happened. So why in the world would he tell this to them? Here's the reason why, I think. is because the disciples need to understand that God is a holy and just God and judgment will come upon those who reject the Messiah. And you need to know that too. You need to understand that there are billions of people out there dying, going to hell. You need to understand how bad it is that God will judge people. Don't lower God's justice to appease your fears. Do you understand? I think all too often we just want that loving, cuddly God. God gives us the truth. He says He is a just God and judgment's coming. Chew on it. Meditate on it. Have your eyeballs punched with eternity, stamped with eternity, knowing that judgment is coming. Boy, it'll change the way we live, ladies and gentlemen. It'll change the way we treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord, too. All these things make sense. Now think about it for a second. Am I going to complain because somebody didn't say hi to me one day? No! Somebody could die go to hell! Let that stuff go! Who cares? Proclaim Christ and Him crucified. He is your only hope. Live for Him. Oh, folks, stop this. I'm afraid half of our counseling in our church could stop if we just have eternity stamped on our eyeballs. I'm convinced. Knowing what people would face motivates the disciples to evangelize and to pray and to seek God. So we need to know that God is a just God. Knowing the depth of God's vengeance also causes us to realize more just how gracious and kind God has been towards us. Do you understand you deserve to be like those people? Do you understand that that's who we are? Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus paid it all. And that should give us great joy. And grace, oh, what a gracious God he is, isn't he? I deserve to be in that city that was destroyed, and you do too. We got pregnant ladies everywhere in this church. (laughs) Apply it to your heart. Recognize where you are. Realize that you're one of the ones that deserves to be there, but God graciously spared you. And he sent his son to die in your place. Repent and trust in Him alone. And by the way, if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ that way, maybe you've been trying to be a good person all your life. Well, let me tell you, you ain't good enough. God's standard for you getting to heaven is perfect righteousness. That's His standard. That's what we're required to have, perfect righteousness. Anybody in there, in here have that on your own? No, hopefully not. 
That's not me either. Hopefully not. You get righteousness from one place. And it's one person. And his name is Jesus. And he died to pay for your sins. And all of his righteousness can be credited to your account. If you will turn from your sin and embrace the Christ. The Messiah alone. That's your only hope. Not one bit of work will help you get to heaven. It's only Jesus. If you do that. He took your wrath. Not you. And so we worship him in light of his justice. Don't we? He is both just and the justifier. And this was all part of God's plan. As Jesus says. So that all things that are written will be fulfilled. God accomplished his plan even in calamity. By the way, (coughs) believer, your calamity is part of God's plan too. Yes, there is responsibility for all parties. But God is using these believers and these events for good, your good, and his glory. Notice the details of his good for us and the glory for him. He says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing bays in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. I don't know about you guys. Let me ask you a question. When you look at that, how does that glorify God? How would that be good? You ever asked that question? You ever thought through this? How is this good? You thought through this? It is good. It is glorious. Why? Because God is shown not to be some God that says, I'll look the other way when sin happens. You reject me? It's okay. I'll just let you go. No, God doesn't do that. God is not that way. I think all too often we think of ourselves as relatively good people and pregnant women especially are good ladies, aren't they? Because after all, they have babies in them. Aren't they good ladies? Sorry, Crystal, not picking on you. (laughs) You're the only one I see right now. Oh, there's another one, Stephanie. (laughs) All these good ladies in here. Why do they get judgment? Well, they're part of the people that rejected their Messiah. Those people. Does God take sin seriously? Yes. Do you? It's a great question, isn't it? Do we take it as serious as he does? It will be great distress upon the land. Literally means tribulation, trouble, forced distress, wrath to this people. Literally, a future culmination of judgment and an outpouring of stored up wrath. Wow. Think about this, folks. God doesn't just let sin go. He It stores up. <laughs> That's horrifying, isn't it? I mean, we often think, well, God's a forgiving God, right? Is God forgiving? 
Absolutely, he's a forgiving God. But there's a basis of his forgiveness. The basis of his forgiveness is found in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The only way you are forgiven is by it being paid for. That's the only way you're forgiven. He does not just say, oh, I'll let that sin go. No, he is a just and righteous God. And if the people of Israel rejected their Messiah, he said, woe to you. It's going to be bad. And it was. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captives into all the nations. Folks, this is a bloody mess because of the rejection of the Messiah. I'm convinced we need more of these messages, don't we? Hard to hear, but it's the truth. I think Haiti needs this message too. I think the whole world needs this. We've been... Unfortunately, there's Christians all over the world or professing Christians that have given this false gospel message to people all over the world. It's the seeker-sensitive movement and the name-it-and-claim-it movement that's the biggest all over the world. They go into these poor countries and give them this false hope and don't tell them that judgment's coming. May God have mercy on them. Look over at Romans 11. This is the time of the Gentiles. Now, does this mean God has abandoned Israel forever? If we were at this spot, some of you might say, well, of course. They rejected him, so he turned his back on them and said, that's it. You're gone. Well, actually, Romans 11, Paul argues with us if we said something like that. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Matter of fact, in Romans 11, 11, he says, I say then, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? Whoa, I thought they did fall. That means fall away completely. Israel, no plan for Israel at all. That's what he means. May it never be. But their transgressions, salvation, or by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. (coughs) Mm. Do you realize that part of God's plan for us Gentiles who are embracing the Messiah is to bring jealousy upon his people? We're going, Jesus is great. (laughs) He died in our place. He's amazing. And they go, why are you embracing my Messiah like that? It's actually supposed to create jealousy in them so that they'll see that they've missed it. And then you look at verse 25, for I do not want you to be, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Boy, doesn't that sound just like Luke 21? That's the same thing. And so all Israel will be saved. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean by that? That's at the end. The nation of Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, what's it say? The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. 
when I take away their sins. Now, it's very interesting here. If we look at this and we say, from Jacob. You know, nobody that's a replacement theology person says that uh, the church replaces Jacob. (laughs) Most of the time they say the church replaces Israel. You know why they don't use Jacob? Jacob's the deceiver. He's the wicked one. (laughs) Don't think I'm after. But the reality is, is Jacob was renamed Israel. But either way, Jacob here is referring to the nation, the rebellious ones. So God does have a plan for them until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's what he gets at in Luke 21. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So at the end of verse 24, it appears that that's the near for the disciples. Now he's going to turn and look at the far. Okay? And that's what we have the next commandment. Let's go over briefly, though, these four elements of why believers follow Christ and their relationship and what's it involved. And and so that we'll persevere in light of these crucial times. Folks, we must have a trust in the perfect person and, 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 and work of Christ. We must pursue knowing Him more. We've got to share Christ with others, both in word and deed. And we must obey our Master, as revealed in the Scriptures, in His will. You know, it's so interesting. Paul states that judgment falls on Israel is given as a reason for us to persevere in the faith and to not turn away from the Messiah. So I believe that he's saying the same things to the disciples at the time. He's giving them judgment. He's saying, judgment's coming. And he's saying, look, persevere in these crucial moments. And how do we do that, ladies and gentlemen? We stay focused on Christ. We trust in Him. We pursue knowing Him. We share Christ with others. And we obey Him. One, 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 one. (laughs) Whatever that means. Let's keep going. This is a horrifying this is horrifying news for the for Jerusalem but even more horrifying for the disciples because they knew the believer they believed the Lord would keep his word they knew that what Jesus was saying was going to happen he they knew that Rome was going to attack the terrifying expectation probably gave him boldness and yet also compassion for those who he confronted <coughs> again if I sit here and scream, uh, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment coming, and I'm not weeping over it, then it's useless. Do you understand? See, that's where I think we get it wrong. We can overreact. Okay, here I go. I'm going to talk about judgment today and get really angry. Ah! And, and miss the whole point. It should be because we have compassion towards the ones that we're speaking to. And I think Jesus is making and showing all of this to them so that they can understand vengeance is coming and so they will be burdened with compassion towards those they're talking with. He sees this. He understands that they need to know that the people you are talking to could very well die soon. He needed to know. They needed to know. Knowing the judgment of God should have a profound effect on us, like I said. Again, 
Do you look at the people that you work with that don't know Christ and see hell hanging over their head? When somebody pulls out in front of you, do you think, oh, I hate that person. Why'd they do that? Or do you think, oh, I wonder if that person's going to hell or not? When we are mistreated, what do we think? Do we have compassion for the lost? <coughs> are we quick to forgive? Do you realize disciples would be a lot quicker to, to forgive if they understood that the people that were treating them bad were on the edge of eternal separation from God? The judgment was coming. Why did Stephen react the way he did when they stoned him? Why? Look, look what Stephen did. Look at his reaction in Acts 7. This is it. Look, how did the disciples react this way? Because they knew judgment was coming. They understood it. <coughs> and what's he say? They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Have vengeance on them, Lord. Kill them. Smite them. No, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having this, he fell asleep, which means he died. If you know the justice of God, you will cry over people. You will have compassion for people. You will hurt for people. You will love people. You will forgive people. And you will do everything to maintain the purity of the body. You will do everything to make sure that there is love amongst the brethren because after all, it's the love of the brethren that the world knows that you are my disciples. You will pursue peace. Do you understand knowing the justice of God and that you deserved it and that you were saved from it and that others will face it will cause you to be totally different, won't it? Or does it? Not going to get to Matthew 24 today. Man, look at the time. It flew by. Good stuff. I'm going to do one of those. Uh, this is homiletics class, John. This is like bad. Mr. Montoya would fire me for this. We're just going to land the plane like this. Ready? That's it. <laughs> We're done. Folks, I think we need to take serious God's justice. And I think we need to look at people differently. Eyes of compassion. Not eyes of judgment. He's going to judge them. You make sure you have compassion on them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness towards us. We don't deserve it, God. We deserve to be in the judgment. We deserve to be in the crosshairs. Yet instead, your son took our judgment. Glorious grace. 
we say, why, God, why us? Why do you love us? And then we know the answer is only because of your character, not because of ours. You are a good and kind and gracious God. Help us to be people that proclaim your justice with compassion and gentleness. We love you. We commit the day to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.